Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Well, hey there, friend. Glad you made it by tonight. Many are called, but few are chosen, they say. But you, friends, you're the chosen ones. The Bloodsters. The Druby Brothers. Yeah, whatever you call yourself. Yeah, you too, Chester. You've got your own fan club, you know. That's a hell of an achievement for a soundbite. Ah, he's shy sometimes. Come on in, friend. Have a seat. Mmm. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, I thought I'd cork it for a while after National Clams on the Half Shell Day last week, but here we are, and once again, we've got calls for celebration. Wouldn't you know it? So, happy Anderson Prunty Day, everyone. That's right. Tonight's featured author. See, there's a reason they call Ohio the birthplace of aviation and Anderson Prunty. Bottoms up. Ah. Ooh. That one grabbed me by the short curlies. Damn. Well, no offense to the Wright brothers, but let's be honest. Anderson got it right the first time. So, smoke them if you got them, friends, and drink those glasses to the bottom because your buddy Drew Blood has a tale to tell. But first, the corporate rigmarole. Hey, you kiddo. This is season one, episode 28 of Drew Blood's Dark Tales. You're listening to the standard edition of the program. To show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu and sign up today. You'll get instant access to our friends at Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights. And, uh, thank you for your support. Here's looking at you, kid. And, uh, we are accepting submissions. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on this show, just send it to DrewBloodHorror at gmail.com. If you're selected, you'll get the full treatment. I think this is the start of a beautiful friendship. And we're off, y'all. Okay, so this first story is one that's steeped in the prosaic existence of small-town America, and it might leave you a little itchy afterwards. From author Anderson Prunty, I give you The Summer of Flies. In May, Marcus thought of it as the hottest summer he could remember. By August, he thought of it as the Summer of Flies. But it wasn't just the flies that were bad that summer. All of the other insects seemed to be out in abundance as well. Every day, waking up in this fly-infested apartment, he would find another mosquito bite looking more like a welt. The flies were the gross kind, slow and green. The kind Marcus always imagined liking shit. Another disgusting thing Marcus realized about the flies. Where there were flies, there were maggots. He imagined them under the damp kitchen tile in his apartment squirming together in trash cans throughout the town, praying with militant glee in the graveyard. The maggots were there, 
The flies were there, but the flies, as they swarmed and irritated everyone, were not the only things making the summer memorable. There were also the disappearances. The early afternoon temperature was in the mid-90s. It would hover around 98 before the sun went down in the evening. Marcus had finished sweeping up those fat flies littering the floor, the victims of daily pesticide spraying, when he decided to go sit on his second-story apartment balcony and lazily flip through the classifieds. Not finding any jobs, he put the paper down, lit up a cigarette, and leaned back. Fuck it, he thought. I'll look tomorrow. It was 11 o'clock and he already wanted a beer. Marcus contemplated going to the refrigerator to get one when something caught the corner of his left eye. It was a girl, a teenager by the looks of her, wandering aimlessly down the sidewalk. Her bright orange tank top was what caught his eye. The thought of what was underneath held his gaze. She also wore a pair of cutoffs, and Marcus watched her legs as she sat down on the retaining wall in front of the library. Probably waiting on someone, he thought. He stood up, arched his back, and went into the house for that beer. In the kitchen, he took his time. He had drunk ten of the twelve-pack last night, contemplated waiting until later, and then convinced himself he would just drink the last two, since he'd have to leave to get more anyway. A big black roach the size of his thumb scurried under the refrigerator. Marcus watched it with bland indifference. He went over to the turntable, flicked a couple of dead flies off the dusty plastic lid, and put on a Ramones record, turning the speaker so he would be able to hear it from out on the porch. He didn't think the neighbors would mind. He hadn't seen them for days. Grabbing a fresh pack of cigarettes from the carton on top of the refrigerator, he went back out onto the balcony, ready to do some heavy-duty lazing. He became nearly giddy with the prospect. This is what every American wishes he could do, Marcus thought. The girl was still there, looking this way and that, like she was waiting for someone. Marcus drank her in, wondering if she even noticed him up there. He got up to change the record three times. He had smoked through half the fresh pack of cigarettes, finished up the second beer, and had to dip into the Johnny Walker Black. The girl never moved. Christ, he thought, she has to be bacon. But that wasn't all he thought. What he really thought about was the complete oddness of the situation. Ever since May, there had been two to three disappearances a week, which in a town like Green Grove significantly diminished the population. He knew many families, especially those with kids, had fled the grove. The police force, small to begin with, was depleted. But fear became the new law, exercising its control. As he sat there staring at the girl on the wall, it dawned on him that she was the first person he had seen outside in nearly a week. He hadn't seen any children or teenagers in probably a month. After another shot of scotch and a joint smoked with abandon on the small stoop, he decided it would simply be the neighborly thing to do to offer her a ride. Maybe she was in shock or suffering heat exhaustion or something. He pulled on a t-shirt and went downstairs, crossing the street in the midst of the lengthening shadows. Unlike a lot of girls in the grove, this one got more attractive the closer he came to her. Her body filled out the top and shorts, and Marcus put her age at 16 or 17, and at that point, his interests were solely prurient. She looked lonely. If, as he drew closer to her, he noticed a lazy eye and a hare lip, he would still have offered her a ride. Get the fuck away! She spat at him, just as he was ready to open his mouth. Look, I was just going to offer you a ride. I don't need one. Fuck off! He thought about arguing, but as he opened his mouth, he realized he was way too hot, high, and drunk to go forward with it. Instead, he retreated slowly and cautiously back to his apartment where he shut himself up in the bedroom and turned the ancient window air conditioner up to its most frigid level. He made himself comfortable under the sheets and drifted off into some winter dreamland. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. 
when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When he woke up, he put a Miles Davis record on and went over to the balcony to take in the evening air and smoke. He opened the door and nearly tripped over the girl sitting on the balcony. Surprise ran through her eyes as she adroitly leaped to her feet. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was you, she said. It's okay. I don't know what your problem with me is. It was shady up here. It looked cool, all right? That's fine. You could have come in if you not. I have an air conditioner. And I'll tell you what my problem is. She wiped a sweaty strand of brown hair off her forehead. My problem is these disappearances. I've heard about those. I'm sure you have. Anyway, I really need to find out who's doing this. And I thought to myself, I'll just go stand someplace and mind my own business. And the first person who comes along and offers to give me a ride or any shit like that, that has to be the murderer. I don't quite understand your logic. So you think murderers are basically friendly people? And besides, how do you know they were murdered? They could have just run away, or been kidnapped or something, or gotten sick and been part of some government cover-up. I've thought about these things too, you know. No, they were murdered. She looked at a spot somewhere off behind Marcus, phasing out before snapping into the present and saying, Hey, give me a cigarette. How old are you? Look, burnout, I'm not a cop. Okay. You want some pot? I'm not a burnout either. Sorry. Marcus flipped a cigarette through the torn opening and held the pack out to her, taking one for himself. He was afraid she was getting ready to go and realized he kind of wanted her to stay. It was somewhat intoxicating just to be standing close to her, smelling her scent. How long had it been since he had talked to anyone except the old man at the carryout? So, he said, what makes you think these are murders? I know where the bodies are. Marcus coughed out a sputtering spume of smoke. You what? I've seen the bodies. I've counted them. The paper said there's only been ten disappearances, but there's been a lot more than that. Like how many? Uncountable. You want to come inside? Bet you'd like that. I would. A lot, actually. You want to come in and sit down? You want to go for a ride? She said in a voice mockingly similar to his. Look, he said, that's weird shit. But even as he stood there rambling, thinking she was probably the crazy one, he knew he was going to say yes. He had to say yes because she was standing there in the damp night air, the nearly full moon illuminated just over the top and to the left of her head, casting an exotic purplish glow over her face. And there was this look in her eyes. Something that made her seem either incapable of lying or so hypnotic that a small lie, even a huge one, didn't really matter. I'll be waiting down on the sidewalk, she said. He looked at the back of her neck. She had her hair pulled up, and he noticed she had a small mole to the left of her spine and just under her hairline. Marcus went inside and grabbed the keys. When he got down to the street, she was standing beside his truck. It's unlocked, he said. 
I'll drive. Do you have your license? No. Does it matter? He tried not to look at her. It was when he looked at her that his willpower seemed to break. She brushed a fly off her chest. Marcus tossed her the keys. Are you even sixteen? You seem to have this hang-up about age. I just have a hang-up about being arrested. Just relax. I've been wandering around all week and haven't seen a single copper. Where are these bodies? Do you know where Womack is? Womack's a long road. Which part of Womack? Out near County Line. Okay. She seemed way too small for the big truck. He enjoyed looking over at her seat, watching her leg muscles as she worked the accelerator and clutch. She had obviously driven before. They slid along all the backcountry roads, in between the deep high fields of corn, never passing another vehicle. Reaching Womack, they turned left. Womack was an amazingly straight road. That was the thing Marcus had always found interesting about this part of Ohio. One minute you might find yourself on a road with so many twists and turns, ups and downs, that it felt like Tennessee. Then the next minute it would be flat and straight as Kansas. So you've seen these bodies, huh? Yes. By the way, what's your name? Does it matter? Yeah, kind of. Unless you want to be remembered as that girl. Maybe I don't want to be remembered at all. God, you're difficult. My name's Ellen, okay? Relax. She had the truck up to 80, the old tires flapping away under the rusted body. So, do you really think going back to look is going to solve anything? Maybe. Well, what are you hoping to find? The killer, for one thing. So, you're hoping he comes back? So far, he's come back again and again. At first, I find two dead bodies. Then there are four. Then eight. And now... Think maybe you should have told the police? I told them after the first two. And they're still there? Go figure. I think you're fucking with me. I don't see much point in that. Maybe you're just taking me out here so you can kill me. Do you have a gun? He reached over and put his hand on the back of her shorts, knowing there wasn't a gun there. If there had been one, the shorts were way too small to hide it. She swerved the truck savagely to her right, dredging up the dirt shoulder and rolling him back to his side. Get the fuck off of me! She shouted. How do I know you didn't come along just so you could get me out here and rape me? More and more, it's starting to cross my mind. That's not even funny. Fuck you. Don't you even care that people are dying? Of course I care. But you have to understand how abstract this all sounds to me. You just seem crazy. Shut up. I mean, come on. You sit outside all day when it's like a hundred fucking degrees. I try to give you a ride and you tell me to get the hell away. Then I find you curled up on my porch and begging for a ride. After accusing me, in so many words, of being a murderer. I told you. It looks shady up there. And I don't beg for anything. Let's just go see the bodies. My name's Marcus, by the way. Oh. Oh? I don't care much for the name Marcus. Is that okay? Whatever. Ellen slowed the truck way down and came to a stop by the side of the road. She creaked the door open and hopped out. Marcus got out on his side and walked around the front of the truck. I don't see any bodies. The bodies are way back there. She pointed to a narrow dirt path, perhaps big enough for a tractor. If he had driven down the road with the corn this high, he wouldn't have even noticed it. You have to walk back this little path quite a ways. Just before the corn becomes the woods, there's like this clearing. That's where they are. Couldn't we have done this during the day? Why does he just leave them out in the open? It's not exactly out in the open back here, is it? Besides, most of those serial killer types want to get caught. You bring a flashlight? Did you find a flashlight when you felt me up back there? It's a full moon. What more do you want? Look, it's bright enough to see your shadow. It was amazingly bright. Ellen headed for the path and Marcus went behind her, watching the moon light up her body and trying to figure out how many months it had been since his last sexual encounter. He realized that by focusing on the prospect of sex, he relieved a little bit of the uneasy tension twisting his neck muscles up in knots. Why didn't we just drive back here? 
I didn't want to surprise anyone. How long is it? Probably almost a mile. How did you find this place anyway? She didn't answer immediately. He almost asked her again, thinking maybe the crispy rustle of the corn and the crickets had drowned him out. But then she said, Me and my boyfriend used to come back here. Oh, all that personality, and she puts out too. It was more than that. We were going to get married when we turned 18. This place was kind of like what we thought marriage would be like. You know, kind of a place away from the parents. A secret place. Yeah, or so we thought. Well, what happened to your boyfriend? He was the first to go. The first to disappear. I'm sorry. We should be quiet now. They continued down the moonlit path in silence for a few minutes. The clearing was now in eyesight. It was like driving toward the ocean and finally coming upon that strip of blue beneath the horizon. Follow me, Ellen said, cutting to her left and into the corn. At the perimeter, she turned and barked. Quickly! Marcus was suddenly and overwhelmingly filled with terror. Maybe it was just the fog of his various addictions, but he hadn't really taken any of this seriously until now. All the childish fears, those moments when certain feelings washed over him and lit that burning pit of dread in his stomach, all came scouring over him, rooting him to that narrow dirt path. He looked over to where Ellen entered the corn, and the absence of her by his side forced him to move. The corn was sharp and itchy on his arms. A hand reached out and took his. Come on. Ellen pulled him after her. Blindly, they made their way through the corn, still headed toward the clearing but comforted with a blanket of seclusion. Well, why don't we just run for the truck? Marcus thought about his sunny, music-filled apartment and realized he desperately wanted to be back in it. Ellen turned around, getting closer to him than she had been all evening. Her eyes were wild, dancing around in her head, an indiscernible color. I'm not turning around now. I have a lot more in this than you. If you're scared, then just stand here. That'll be safer than running back to your truck. But I'm going to some place where I can see that bastard throw another victim. I'm going to get close enough to see his face. Marcus lowered his head. He didn't have a macho streak in his body, but she had somehow made him feel low. He began to understand the significance this had for Ellen. I'll come. Then let's go. There was enough of a breeze so their movements weren't too noticeably loud. Nevertheless, the closer they felt they were getting, the more they slowed down and tried to squeeze between the stalks. Once they could see the clearing, they stayed back in the corn, using it like a security blanket. In the distance, Marcus saw the bodies. There was something infinitely sad about the way they were piled up there in the clearing. Knowing the answer, he turned to Ellen and whispered, Is that them? Gravely, she nodded her head and said, Let's move in a little closer. What about the killer? I don't see him. Well, that's obvious, Marcus thought. Stepping out of the corn was like losing your clothing. They were naked now. If there was a killer on the loose running around stark raving mad, they had little chance of hiding now. Running, maybe, but hiding was definitely out. Marcus followed Ellen. The grass in the clearing was worn down, as though it had been trampled quite a bit. Marcus thought it was probably from someone driving a truck out here. As they drew closer to the body pile, the stink intensified to a truly nauseating level. Marcus grabbed Ellen's arm. She turned to look at him, her stare pinning him where he was. Since coming out here, something had changed about her. She came off as a little flaky before, but now she just looked insane. I don't think I can get any closer. Marcus pulled his shirt up over the lower half of his face. Have some fucking respect, Marco, Ellen said, shaking his grip from her arm. Through the noisy insectoid country night, Marcus heard a singular sound resonate. The humming of flies. My God, there must be millions of them on those bodies. He even thought he could hear the wet squirm of the maggots twisting through decomposing flesh. His gorge rose and sat stinging at the back of his throat. I'm going to go wait in the truck, he said. Ellen turned to him once again. The craziness was gone. 
She had put on her seductive face. Pouty and girlish, it was the look she had used to get him to give up his keys. Come on, Marcus. It's just a few more steps. You'll get used to the smell. Why don't you tell me what we're really doing here, and I'll think about staying. But you're already thinking about staying, aren't you? Don't you know what we're doing here? We're trying to find the killer, remember? If that was the case, then why aren't we still hiding out in the corn? You can't catch anything by hiding. Nobody said anything about catching anything. I'm not a cop. Marcus looked into the heap arranged in a semicircle. It had to be most of Green Grove in there. Exposed to the elements, they had decomposed rapidly, their skin gray, pieces of skin peeled back, probably the result of wild animals. All of them were rendered unrecognizable. Ellen wandered right up next to the bodies and dropped down onto her knees. What the hell are you doing? Can we just go? I'm saying a prayer. Can't I do that? Just hurry the hell up. Marcus turned around and looked up at the moon. What a night this was turning out to be. He turned back around and Ellen was back on her feet. Come here. I'd really rather not. I'll make it worth your while. Jesus, he muttered, thinking, I'm here anyway, aren't I? He slowly walked over to her and she turned, grabbing him around the waist, pressing herself against him. Her eyes gleamed with a wild urgency. He bent down to kiss her and leaned into the smell of a hundred rotten corpses. She fastened her mouth around his, trying to bring him down to the ground. His stomach fought to come up, and he put his hands on her hips, nearly encircling her bare midriff to try and push her away. He felt the twitching of her skin like something was fighting to get out. Just when he couldn't hold the vomit anymore, he let go but it was forced back into his throat. He coughed and backed away, stumbling to his knees. Before he could stand up, his stomach convulsed again and he heaved, expecting the wet acid of his puke. Instead, he felt the flies crawling over his tongue and all around the inside of his mouth. He looked back at Ellen and the crumbling wall behind her the corpses were animated. Ellen standing at their center, flies crawling through her hair, covering her eyes and body. Marcus bolted toward the corn, but the dead were there also. They had shifted surrounding him. Flies crawled from their skin in hollow eye sockets, forming a cloud that blotted out the moon's glow. The circle tightened, and Marcus waited to feel their hands on his body. From behind him, Marcus heard Ellen whisper, You're the last one, Marcus. And he felt her hands, hands that he would have welcomed a half hour ago, slide down his stomach and crush his sex in an unforgiven grip. <laughs> what happens now? He begged. You taste death, she whispered. The killer is here, somewhere. Only he didn't kill just my boyfriend. He killed me, too. What does that have to do with me? A soul is not free until his work is done. He made that clear. You're the last one. With that, Ellen snapped his neck and let him fall to the ground. It was a strange night that Marcus spent lying on the ground, his body getting colder, his heart inactive in his chest. By morning, he had joined the pile, becoming food for the flies as he remained still throughout the day. The next night, the dead rose again, dragging with them their veil of flies and moved into the next town, each of them intent on doing what had been done to them. Hungry for some shred of justice.
And that was The Summer of Flies by Anderson Prunty, a good reminder that flies are a dead man's revenge. Also, when a girl tells you to fuck off, you might want to listen to her the first time. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Before we get into our next story, y'all, I'd like to tell you about a very special charity, Scares That Care. Scares That Care is a nonprofit organization dedicated to uniting horror fans to help people in need. They're an IRS-approved 501c3 charity founded in 2006. To date, Scares That Care has raised and donated over $300,000 to organizations and families with a child affected by illness, burns, or women fighting breast cancer. Each of these families received $10,000 from events and direct donations. Look at here, y'all. Scares That Care is all above board, completely transparent, and if you're looking to make a difference in someone's life, there's no finer charity to donate to. For a tax-deductible donation or to find out how you can help, just visit scaresthatcare.com and click the How to Help button at the top of the page. Remember, y'all can never go wrong helping someone who needs it, so let's show them what we horror people are really made of. Okay, our next story is a trippy one indeed. A dark story unfolding in the Big Easy. By Anderson Prunty, I give you... Death Trippin' in New Orleans For two years, Todd Hoskins had followed a voice. The voice was an insubstantial, shadowy thing. He was never really sure if it was inside his head or coming from somewhere externally, brushing past his ear like a moist whisper. Sometimes he didn't think it was a voice at all. No, it was a voice, and it did have an owner. Unfortunately, Todd was only able to find this owner during moments when he doubted his mental faculties the most, just before sleep or immediately upon awakening, deep in the throes of drunkenness, or simply in a darkened room where space was non-existent and time yawned like an empty chasm. Sometimes he thought he wanted the voice to go away. Sometimes he thought he could chase it away so the only voice left in his head would be his own. But he knew this wasn't true. If he lost the voice, then he lost her. Her. The voice was the last thing he had to remember Althea Jones. It was her voice that called to him. Nearly inaudible. Intangibly soft. Teasingly close impossibly distant. The voices had started after the car crash two years ago, when they were both seventeen. Todd was the passenger. He lived, emerging from the accident without a scratch, merely suffering from shock. Althea had died instantly, the steering column pulverizing her chest, crushing her heart. Now only memories in her voice he did what he thought the voice wanted him to do, going wherever it told him to go. Now it was September, and Todd found himself standing at the far end of Jackson Square in New Orleans, at the edge of a hurricane, and he couldn't think of any reason he was there, save for the voice. He wasn't a stranger to the city. His family had lived there until he was 12, before moving to Ohio. He had always liked New Orleans. It seemed to have more than just a physical presence. 
there was another layer, another dimension to it. Maybe it was the strange history of the city itself. Maybe it was the city's fascination with things like voodoo and the dead. All those rumors of vampires and zombies. Maybe it was the heat and humidity. Undoubtedly, it was all these things, forming the ghastly melange that crouched in the brain and wrapped the skin. He liked being there. Not only was he following the voice, he also took an adult view of at least one part of his childhood. Something that made him think about full circles and how beginnings are so often endings. Tonight, however, would be his last night. He would leave feeling somehow empty and unfulfilled. He had become accustomed to disappointment. Many times he had gone where Althea's voice told him to go only to find nothing there. And so far, there didn't seem to be anything here either. Just emptiness. According to the weather reports, a hurricane was only a few hours away. People had begun fleeing the city this morning. Tonight it was practically empty. Businesses, not all of them, but most, had closed up. The owners shuttering their windows and going someplace safe to pray that the winds didn't tear their buildings down. He had always thought of any tourist city as being very similar to a whore. Visitors come to leave their money, have fun, and maybe look at her beauty however decadent she has to offer. But then they leave with only a foggy memory. And tomorrow, by plane or by bus, he would do the same. For now, there was the gentle beauty of the nearly empty city, the damp darkness soft-lit by gas lights, and the winds that were hard, constant, and vaguely refreshing coming as they were at the end of a massive heat wave. He continued walking through Jackson Square thinking he had never seen it without any pedestrians or musicians or tarot card readers. There was something spectral about the empty benches. But Tal was wrong. The square wasn't completely empty. Maybe it had just been the murkiness of the night, but he had failed to notice the man sitting at the far end of the walkway. The man sat on a red milk crate, a brown man in a brown suit strumming a battered brown acoustic guitar. Todd came up behind him, veering off to the man's left so he didn't startle him. Todd waited until he was parallel with the man and began circling back toward him. The musician noticed Todd and nodded in acknowledgement. Todd couldn't tell if the man was playing a song or not. The man strummed the guitar and hummed a tune that was maddeningly familiar but still unnamed. A small white bucket sat in front of the musician, and he nodded toward it. Todd always hated it when the street performers more or less asked for money, but something inside of Todd felt sorry for this poor guy sitting on the edge of a hurricane and playing to an empty street. Todd reached into the pocket of his jeans, pulling out a dollar and approaching the musician. Todd leaned down to put the dollar in the bucket before the musician's leathery hand reached out to block him. You hang on to your money, the man rasped. No, you deserve it, Todd said. I'm not asking for money. Todd looked at the man's watery green eyes. The man looked down, voicelessly telling Todd to look in the bucket. When Todd looked into the bucket, he saw that it was filled with black and white flyers. Take one, the old man said. That's your free admission to a bit of fun on this most lonesome of nights. Todd picked up one of the flyers, read it, and said, Thanks. The man nodded didn't say anything. Todd glanced down at the flyer in his hand. But there's no address. You know it when you get there. It'll be the only place with its lights on. The voice, Althea's voice, whispered across Todd's ear, sending a shiver down his spine. He knew he would go. Well, thanks again, he said to the musician before turning and walking away. Have fun. Todd looked down at the flyer in his hand. 
It was an index card-sized piece of white paper and in big black blocky letters it said, Free show. Simple enough, he thought. Now I just need to find it. He nodded to the guitar player and turned around. A brief moment of hesitation filled him and he considered turning back to the guitar player and asking, No, really, where is it? But decided not to. A man who followed voices of dead girls to strange cities across the United States could not really spend too much time questioning himself about where he should go. Instead, he held the flyer out in front of him, almost like a flashlight. He glanced up at the green and white striped awning of Café du Monde, noting the umbrellas on the tables had been removed and turned to his left. The guitar player was right. Except for the street lamps, there wasn't a single light glowing. No one was home. The city's emptiness grew ever more palpable. Aimlessly, he wandered up a couple of blocks and turned left. Aside from the darkness, the city was ominously quiet. The only thing he heard was the wind in his ears. With a sudden exhilaration, he wondered when the hurricane was going to break over the city. Damage. That was what all the news reports had predicted. Severe damage. And he decided he didn't care. If he was going to be caught out in the storm, he welcomed it. He wanted it to rage over him. He wanted the cold air to strip back his skin, lay his soul bare, and run its icy fingers through him. If it killed him, it didn't matter. Two years of misery had him convinced that any sort of happiness, any lifting of his black cloud, was not going to come. Maybe that was why he heard the voice. Maybe that voice was death. Maybe that was what he secretly hoped for every time he boarded an airplane or got in his car and raced down the highway. Maybe he wanted some fiery death to claim him, twist his body up with metal, and he knew Althea would hate him for even thinking that. Althea, the beautiful young girl with the old-sounding name, and just thinking her name sent a tight shiver down the center of his body. That feeling bothered him. There was almost as much fear as love in that feeling. Lost in his thoughts, he stopped when he came to an opening in between buildings. An alley. Looking down the alley, he convinced himself he saw a light gleaming somewhere back there. On the building to his right was a black sign with white lettering advertising the opening as Ohio Alley. He had never heard of it. Normally, if the city wasn't deserted, he would not have wandered down a dark, narrow alley, but surely the pickpockets and thieves wouldn't see a profit in stalking a dead city. With the paper still held out in front of him, he started down the alley. And that's when he first got the feeling that somehow, things just were not right. The darkness, the emptiness, the quietness. All of that was explained away by the hurricane. That was not part of the strangeness he now felt. Now, being in the alley, it felt wrong. The buildings were higher than he remembered them, and they weren't just darkened, they were black. The broken cobblestones beneath his feet didn't feel entirely stable. They felt spongy, threatening to open up and suck him down. This was a prospect he would have completely welcomed, he wanted the earth to take him. It was what happened in the end, eventually, inevitably, anyway. Why not let it consume him now? The air whistled through the cramped alleyway. For a moment, he felt like the alley was breathing around him, the mushy ground vibrating with a steadiness reminiscent of a beaten heart. At the end of the alley, he could see a faint yellow light pouring out of a door or a window. That had to be the place. He walked the remainder of the way on legs that did not feel entirely his own. The soft light at the end of the alley flickered in and out. Were the winds that heavy, he wondered. Could the power already be threatening to go out? 
It was possible, he guessed. Maybe the storm had already landed somewhere and would be on top of the city in no time at all. If that was the case, he should have been glad he was moving indoors. Only, he wasn't. He could have stayed out in it. He could have let it take him and that wouldn't have bothered him at all. He reached the light. Something about it invited him toward it. It was meager lighting, not even bright enough to strain his not-focused eyes. The light invited him inside. Suddenly, the light seemed the answer to his loneliness and his darkened mood. Inside, maybe there were people. And inside, there was definitely that damp old wood smell he would forever associate with the city. It was a smell he found comfort in. It reminded him of his grandma's house. He stood in the doorway and at that moment couldn't remember a time when he had stood anywhere else. Suddenly, he didn't remember where he had come from and had absolutely no idea of the black death he had been chasing for the past two years. He had no idea where he was going. He had no idea that was where he wanted to go because he was standing there in front of some kind of shelter. That was what the light and the sense told him, that this place was there to protect him. There were people inside, six of them, three couples. Todd went on in to join them, still clutching the flyer in his hand like he would need it for admission. When he saw the others seated in old wooden chairs, he knew he no longer needed his flyer, and there was a sudden sinking inside of him. There wasn't anything to do here. It was just someone's idea of a cruel prank. Some malicious soul probably paid the street performer off to sit there and hand these false promises out to the last of the storm stragglers. But because he hadn't felt quite right all night, Todd decided to sit down and give his legs a rest. The others were seated in an evenly spaced out fashion, as though afraid of anyone else overhearing their hushed conversations. There were 16 chairs, four rows of four, separated by a narrow aisle. Todd counted them because he had nothing else to do. One of the couples stared intently toward the front of the dingy yellow room. Another couple sat in the back row and snickered over their own private jokes. The other couple stood up. They had been sitting in the front row and passed Todd as they left. This is some kind of fucking joke, the guy said. Yeah, like what the hell? The girl said. When they got to the door, the guy announced, You all might as well go home. Nobody's coming. They do this all the time. There was an uncomfortable tension before the guy finally escorted his girl out into the night. Todd understood the tension. He felt sure the others now felt exactly like the guy who had just left, but to stand up and leave now would be too much like following orders, and people do not often want to look like sheep, at least not overtly. So that left the five of them waiting in the room with the flickering lights and the warm smell. The couple in the front row continued to stare intently forward, unmoving and not talking. The couple in the very back row continued their conversation. They were like himself and Althea, Todd thought. They could have gone anywhere. They were just happy to be in each other's company. Even if they were in a room staring at nothing, that didn't matter because they were each other's entertainment. And now Althea was dead, and Todd didn't think he could ever feel that again. He would never again feel what that giggling couple in the back row felt. That warmth. That belonging. That sense of togetherness. Of being a part of someone else's life. After thinking that last thought, the power went out. The girl in the front row screamed, and then things really got weird. The room went black, much blacker than it should have. Todd stood up from his rickety wooden chair and upon standing up, lost his balance and collapsed to the floor. Whoever had been in the room with him before was now gone. He waited for a crack of thunder, a flash of lightning, 
anything. But all he got was the constant howling growl of the wind. He didn't know what was happening. The room swirled around him. He no longer knew where the door was or where it had been. He didn't know which way was the front of the room. And he didn't care. He was ready to lie down on the floor and let the entire structure rain down on him. That was what he had wanted since the beginning anyway, wasn't it? But that didn't happen. The room shook violently, still in that disorienting black. He felt the wind rage over his skin and it didn't feel like anything he would run or seek shelter from. He liked the way it felt. It was cold in the stifling New Orleans humidity. Even more than that, it filled him with something he hadn't felt in a long time. He didn't think he wanted to die anymore. Now all he wanted to do was lie there and feel the wind rage across his body. That would have been enough for him. And as quickly as he thought that thought, the wind stopped. He realized he had closed his eyes, half expecting some kind of grim final climax to it all. But that wasn't what happened. Instead, there was a quiet calm. He opened his eyes. He was no longer in the room. He was outside of a cemetery, and he wasn't lying down anymore. He was standing up, right in front of the twisted wrought iron cemetery gates hanging slightly ajar. To the right of the gate, someone had written the phrase, There are ghosts in this city, in black spray paint. For a moment, he didn't know if the graffiti was talking about the city of New Orleans itself, or this city of the dead in front of him. He could still smell the storm in the air, but it was no longer on him, if it had ever even come. Maybe it had passed. Todd didn't have any idea. Looking around him, he wasn't even sure if he was still in New Orleans. It was like the cemetery occupied a sphere of existence all its own. In his ear, Todd heard the whisper, Athea beautiful Althea breathing across the side of his head, beckoning him to follow her. Todd walked into the cemetery, the mausoleums towering around him, some of them fresh and clean and gleaming white beneath the moon, others in a state of complete disrepair, as though whatever had once been contained within could come crawling out at any moment. From the corner of his eye, he saw a movement, and from somewhere within the back of his brain, he found a memory. It was a violent memory. It surged up behind his eyes, the flashing whiteness of his car cutting into the electrical utility pole. But it wasn't his car, he told himself. It was Althea's car. She had been driving and she had died. He shook the memory from his head. That wasn't the Althea he wanted to remember. The Althea he wanted to remember was in front of him, sliding past a crumbling gray tomb. Althea, he said. Todd. She said back. We need to talk. I know. It's not what you think it is. Todd drew closer to the ghost. Was it a ghost in front of him? I know what you're going to say. I need to get on with my life. I need to stop following you. I need to stop trying to die. That's not it at all. What then? I want you to join me. Another memory cascading through his brain caused him to take a step back from Althea even though she was pale and beautiful and standing right there in front of him. Everything he remembered about her made crystalline and drawn into sharp focus. But why was he stepping back? We could do it, Todd. Me and you could be together, just like we used to be. All you have to do is not go back. If you never leave this cemetery, you can be with me forever. I loved you, Althea. But even as he spoke the words, he doubted the weight of them. Doubted the truth of them. 
Another memory stabbed at him and he dropped to one knee. This one was harsh and fuller than the rest, more than just a fragment. In the memory, Todd was driving the car. He fought with the steering wheel to keep the car on the road, but it was a battle he lost. And there was something else in the car with him, but not someone. In his head, and there was a reason he had aimed his car at a lone pole to begin with. You know you want this, Todd. No, he said. He stood up, shaking the memories out of his head, swelling with the new memories flooding into it. The memories he had had before the crash. The real memories. I don't want it. Why not? She asked, her lips gone pouty. Because you never were. But here I am, Todd. How can you say that I never was? You were the figment of a lonely boy's imagination. And when I wanted you to go, you wouldn't. And so I had to destroy what I created. You. Yourself. Oh, you've grown so clever in your manhood. But dreams don't go away that easily, Todd. I will be with you until you die. No, you won't. After saying that, the storm broke over the city of the dead. He crawled into an open mausoleum, one not yet used to escape the winds, and Althea crawled in with him. The chill of the winds was replaced with all the warmth of a fever. The sweating thing that never was lay beside him in this cramped quarter, trying to coax Todd in any way plausible, trying to get him to acknowledge her in some way because the more he acknowledged her, the more he addressed her, even if it was to tell her she was just something he had dreamed up, the stronger she became. So he lay there, huddled up into himself, his eyes drawn tightly closed as her hands roamed over his body, and her breath swept his ear and his scalp. Hands and breath, nothing more. Nothing more physical than that. Nothing more physical than what could have passed as wind. Nothing there, Todd had to continue telling himself, listening to the cold winds around him and feeling so very hot inside like he was going to erupt in fire. But that was exactly what he couldn't do. When he had dreamed her up, Althea could do nothing. She could take him to whatever pleasure limit his mind wanted to go. She could do all that, Todd now realized, because she was his mind. He quivered, feeling the cool stone push against his fevered back as he felt Althea's hands move lower and lower reaching between his legs, preparing to administer the final test. Todd knew what she wanted. He knew she wanted to find rigid stiffness there, hardness to enclose her breath around, and then eventually, her sex. She wanted to drag him back up within her. Todd started to laugh. A crazy man in a tomb during a hurricane trying not to let himself be raped by his own mind. He laughed away the past, fits of coughing turning into a bout of vomiting, but sometime during the course of this fit, he felt something whoosh out of him. His head, if it was possible, felt emptier. After that, he relaxed, sprawling back, his puke warm against his back. He didn't know how long he stayed like that, but eventually he found blackness. A blackness more comforting than he ever thought. It felt like years before he opened his eyes again. In reality, it was probably little more than a day. But in another way, he realized it was years. He felt like he had regained the lost years after the crash. He felt like he had regained a certain amount of sanity, a sense of purpose and a sense of light filled the space he had emptied. 
He slid out of the mausoleum and into the wet dawn. He walked out of the cemetery and thought about trying to board a plane or a bus back to Ohio, but he suddenly found he was terrified to step foot on an airplane. Maybe, he figured, this was the place to begin his new life. With his wet clothes sticking to his skin, he turned to his left, wondering how he had made it so far out here, and began walking toward the dark and sinking city before him. And that was Death Trippin' in New Orleans by Anderson Prunty. Dr. Blood's official diagnosis? Schizothenia. See what I did there? Sounded like a nice girl, though. A little about the author. Anderson Prunty is the author of Failure as a Way of Life, Neon Dies at Dawn, and many other wildly creative novels and short story collections you'd be remiss not to check out. You can find all of them on grindhousepress.com or on Amazon and Audible. He narrates many himself, quite well I might add. He's also got a brand new book out called Meat Photo. In the spirit of shot-on-video horror of the 80s, Meat Photo is a transgressive, absurd horror comedy and the love child of Anderson Prunty and fellow author C.V. Hunt. Don't sleep on it, friends. Grab a copy today, and if you'd rather listen, I hear there's an audiobook coming down the pike. Hey, do me a favor, would you? Subscribe to this podcast wherever you do your listening, and leave me a five-star review and maybe a kind word there, even if you're listening on YouTube. I need soldiers on all fronts to win this battle, and I appreciate it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of your screen. You'll find yourself at chillintalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stop on by, would you? I don't bite much. Well... I'm afraid this is where we part ways, friend. At least till next week. So grab a drink for the road. I don't know where you're going, but you'll know it when you get there. It'll be the only place left with the lights on. This week, I'd like to recognize a couple more of our community. Lady Nevermore and Kim Sawhicky. Two lovely ladies whose comments and support has been much appreciated. So, if there are no objections, I'd like to get on with it. Lady Nevermore and Kimberly Sawhickey, may the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. Here's to the health of your enemy's enemies, and until we meet again, y'all, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Good night, y'all. list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.